You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. We have a packed show, as usual today, with five fabulous destinations and six inspirational arts community leaders, ready to deliver insights, entertainment and things we can do from the safety of our own sofas. So let's get rolling. I'm going to change things up a bit today and make our first stop on St. James Street at Talking Horse Theatre. What a delight it is once again to imagine myself walking through the doors of Talking Horse Theatre to meet with their artistic director, Adam Bretsky, along with Kathleen Johnson of the Stable Boys Improv Troupe. Cue applause. Woo! <laughs> Oh, it's good to hear applause again. <laughs> yeah. Shimmying, but no one can see it because it's <laughs> audio format. Hello, friends. Hello. Hi. So with no theater in the immediate future, we are we are fully in the online version of Theatre Life. And I know you have a benefit concert coming up on the 23rd of May. Do you want to give us a quick, a quick overview of that, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I can't take any credit for this whatsoever. This is all put together by Audra Sergal, who has had a a lot of musical theater students that she has uh, taken on, and she's been doing lessons via Zoom. And Audra is just such a fantastic partner that she said, you know, I've got these students, they want to perform, but uh, obviously we don't have a performance venue that we can do. So we're going to do this all online, and we'd like to use that to benefit Talking Horse in this tough time. So we've got some terrific talents that are all uh, students of Audra's that are going to be putting on their best pieces, and it's all as a benefit for Talking Horse. So we're really excited for that. That's great. You've got, you know, Stable Boys raising money. You've got the mm-hmm. Audra Circle doing the benefit concerts. I mean, it's just so lovely that so many theatre and, and performance groups really, truly value everything that Talking Horse is and has been and does for the community. So I'm I'm so reassured by that. Yeah, we are just everlastingly grateful for the support and the generosity of all our patrons and all our supporters at this time. Uh, You know, I think it's really interesting in this era where the uh, public school board is meeting to discuss how they're going to change what's coming next. And of course, you look at cuts to programs such as the arts and music and such. And you look at a time like the pandemic that's going on right now where everybody's confined to the houses and what's the resource that people turn to for help. And that's, that's the arts. Um, It's things to be entertained by, to keep our, our hopes high and to help us keep moving. Yeah. And I think that's true all over the world. Everyone that I've spoken to for the one will same boat show, when we've talked about the arts, they've said, you know, what is keeping everybody sane right now? It's the arts. So let's hope we don't forget. Let's hope that we remember that after this but I guess the financial pressures are going to be so great that the chances are well I think this is sort of an ebb and flow type of situation that everybody looks towards it right now and they say well this is a nonprofit that I know their business model depends on people being there and so people that are able to give have certainly stepped forward and given to the theater which is terrific Uh, and as we move forward 
we're just going to have to get creative and tap into some of the resources that we've used now. For instance, you mentioned this cabaret that's coming up. That's a new venue that we had never discovered before. The Stable Boys Live in Your Living Room is something we hadn't discovered before. And so we'll just have to develop new programs like that to give people content where they are. I think now is is the time, you know, where creativity really rises. And yeah. it's, uh, definitely there is a lot to be concerned about and worried about. But I think there's also a lot to be hopeful for, especially if you are someone who has found ways to prioritize the arts in your life. Now more than ever, we need creativity. We need thinking outside of the box and outside of what we normally do. And, and I think sometimes just like an improv, when you put constraints on yourself is when you can really start to come up with some of the more interesting and exciting options. So hopefully we will allow this virus to force us into exciting new creative things that will make us better than we were when we went into it. So what constraints are we putting on today? Oh, big ones. Oh, yes. <laughs> so to give your listeners a little background, we, we messaged <laughs> you and said, hey, uh, Diana, what do you want us to talk about? And you mentioned, um, well, how about improv for parakeets? So <laughs> in jest, certainly uh, from your intention, I'm sure. But uh, we take everything very seriously in improv. That's right. Yeah. So we yes anded that. Yep. Uh, so we're going to play a little improv for parakeets game right now. We're going to play a game called Catchphrase. Now, <laughs> in this game, Diana, you can feel free to say anything in the world that you would like. Uh, we're going to give you a scene here in just a, li a little bit. But here's the catch. Uh, Kathleen and I we can only say one of two lines. Uh, Kathleen's two lines are going to be, run that by me again, and have you thought this through? My two lines will be, that's my job, and who said that? Uh, so we can only use one of those two lines throughout the scene that we're about to do with you here. So, Diana, since you can say anything that you want, what's a topic that you consider yourself an expert on? Oh, the club scene in Jakarta, Indonesia in 1995. <laughs> Terrific. I know nothing about that. Me so too. you really will have to teach us. Uh, so <laughs> Diana, um, <laughs> when you're ready, go ahead and kick us off with the club scene. Well, now you must have heard of a famous club called Tanamore. Uh, run, run that by me again. Tanamore, T A N. A-M-U-R, the most famous club in Asia in the mid-1990s. Adam? Who said that? Well, a lot of us said it, mostly me. But no, no, there was a lot of people that said it all over Asia. Have you thought this through? Oh, I thought it through a lot. After a lot of alcohol. <laughs> Wait, is it you your said job? that. <laughs> I mean, all of, all of us, all my friends said it. Now, you can't go to Tanamore unless, you know, you've been to the adjacent bar, JJ's, first. That's my job. I thought I recognized you when we first met. You, you were one of the bar tenders there, weren't you? Who said that? Well, maybe you have a, a body double. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, run, run that by me again. Adam has a lot of body doubles. I mean, you know, he's got this very, very you know, attractive and welcoming face. And I, I just think that's what bartenders all over the world have. That's my job. <laughs> have you thought this through? Well, I, you know, admittedly, it was after a few drinks. And I, to be honest, I can't even remember what the inside of JJ's looks like. I mean, it's been so long ago and I was clearly, you know, a few sheets to the wind every time I went there. 
Oh, who said that? <laughs> oh, there were a lot of witnesses, I can tell you. Um, anyway, most of you uh, will remember that there was a, a kind of a mezzanine catwalk at Tanamore. Run that. Run that by me again. It was like a like a little kind of a gangway, like a little metal dance floor that went around like two thirds of the main dance floor. And so we'd get up there and we'd dance. That's my job. Was it your job to fall over the edge? I mean, there were people that fell over this, the low railing. Who said that? Adam, have you thought this through? Nobody thought it through when they got on that catwalk and started gyrating. I mean, there were, I did see somebody tumble off one time. That That's my job. <laughs> and that is where I saw you, Adam. <laughs> and <Yay>! scene. <laughs> Great job. Yeah, we like to throw some challenges your way. And so the best way we figured to challenge you would be to parakeet maybe phrases that we had heard that we can only repeat and then, you know, really just make you do all the work. <laughs> you did great with that, Diana. I thought you were awesome. I love that game because it's so simple, but I think it really works on like a couple of different levels. Like, especially if you're talking about people who want to kind of take their improv skills to the, you know, that next step up. Diana, you're forced to really justify everything that you're saying and keep that story moving forward so it doesn't feel repetitive and going in circles. And I think for, you know, Adam and I, it really forces you to think about, like, how can I let intonation or physicality, although you you can't see that in this format, but if we were all together, that would be a way to utilize that to really push it so that it's not just the words you're saying, but the way you're saying it and how you're using, you know, your body in it. So I think it's one of those cool activities. I would love it if the Stable Boys uh, did improv lessons, not because not for anybody that wants to be in the stable boys, because that's too terrifying, but just it's a really great way of kind of loosening up your brain. Might yeah. That, yeah. Might, might that happen in the post-pandemic world? I think that's definitely a possibility. You know, in my in one of my other many lives, um, utilizing improv in like the corporate setting is something that I've done in Columbia a little bit, but also in the general Midwest. And there are so many ways where you can really look at these different elements of improv just as fun and loosening yourself up, but also improving, you know, some of those other things. So maybe we'll have to do that. You could hire a couple stable boys or ponies to have some small group lessons. That would be a great fundraiser for Talking Horse. Yeah. I love it. Terrific. <laughs> well, thank you so much once again. I, I love our improv lessons. I feel like you teach me something new every week. And sometimes <laughs> I succeed and sometimes I fail. But yeah, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Failure's great. <laughs> Thank you, Adam Retsky and Kathleen Johnson. Thanks so much. Next today, we're off to the virtual George Caleb Bingham Gallery to chat to its director, Catherine Armbrust. Hello, Catherine. Good morning, Diana. Now, I know there is a huge amount of sadness around about the loss of a graduation experience for so many students. But also, you know, it's been really difficult for all of the teaching staff who didn't get to properly say goodbye. How was the end of the abrupt end of the semester for you? It was actually very satisfying in a weird way because I ended up kind of at the last minute um, normally for my seniors in senior seminar, we have like a party and an art trade. And so I was trying to figure out what I could do special for them. And so sort of at the last minute, I wrangled together essentially a slideshow of video recordings and sweet notes that their mentors had written to them 
or recorded for them. And then I played that for our last class and just bawled my eyes out through the whole thing. And then as a special surprise, my friend Vanessa German, who is this wonderful artist from Pittsburgh, recorded this gorgeous, loving tribute to them. We listened to her TED Talk at the beginning of the semester together. And boy, I think almost everybody had little shiny eyes after that. So yeah, we had our like last Zoom class and I played all this for them to sort of like buck them up and let them know that they were really special. So that was a special way for me to show the seniors how much I loved them and how much their mentors and everybody loved them. So what happens? I mean, they all go off into the world now. What does it look like to graduate (laughs) with a fine arts degree in 2020? I mean, what are some of their plans? So that was sort of what we did last uh, for class. I I got all the sentimental stuff sort of packed in the middle. And then I asked them what they were all going to be doing afterwards. You know, a couple of them are applying to grad school. One of them got accepted to a residency. That residency program is now kind of trying to figure out if it wants to be remote or if it wants to kind of delay So she's sort of waiting for them to figure that out. Um, One of my students wants to move to LA. A few people have already moved to where they're going to be. And, you know, one of my students has already moved to Lawrence and he kind of wants to start up like a t-shirt company. He's an illustrator. And so he's putting those plans in motion. So a lot of them have some big ideas Do you think it's harder today for them than it was when you graduated? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, our final project is (laughs) essentially putting together an application packet for like jobs or grad school or applying for an exhibition. So I'm still having them work on kind of the normal things in terms of like artist statement, resume, portfolio, like putting their visual portfolio together. But it's definitely more uncertain because so many art jobs, of course, have had layoffs. And there's just a lot, everybody's sort of frozen in time right now, right? Trying to sort of figure out what's going to be happening next. So I I think we're all just kind of waiting to see what happens. But part of my kind of course plan for them the whole semester before all this happened is to be creative problem solvers. I mean, that's what we're preparing them for through all of these classes that they take. So that's helping them move out into the world creatively and think differently, I think, than a lot of people. I was listening to KOPN this morning and they had Community Pulse on with Dr. Elizabeth Alleman and she was talking about how there's been an increase in applications to medical school, but how much she personally valued um, doctors who had had an arts training before they became doctors. And we've had a lot of nursing students move through our program, even just in my arts lecture course. And I and I've that's something I've actually been thinking about for a long time because there's been a a lot of studies talking about the connection between being able to sort of look empathetically at the arts and how that might translate to the way that you can deal empathetically with other humans and patients, of course. And then the other big thing that they've been discovering recently is that because of the way the educational program has shifted and the way that people are like growing up and playing right on machines rather than sort of using their hands for things that a lot of surgeons have lost that dexterity. And so I think that there's going to be this move into kind of handwork again to help train surgeons with dexterity for their hands. So like a fibers, a fibers program would be a really good 
place for somebody who's interested in that to to move towards. Hmm. Well, we're going to talk about their senior show today, (laughs) which is called Chimera. Tell us about that. So um, part of what we do in the senior seminar is everybody comes up with a theme for the show, the title, and normally it's presented, of course, in the Bingham Gallery, which I'm the director for. But this time we really had to to pivot to figure out what was gonna what was gonna happen next. And so we ended up moving to this virtual exhibition, right? So my gallery assistant Savannah and I started building a template online. And then I let the students start to build their own pages within this group site. Um, And then we put together an artist bio page, and then this landing page that had this just gorgeous exhibition statement that they wrote that every time I read it, I cry. But it ended up being a really special moment that is going to (laughs) be like, lasting longer in history than the exhibition would have in the gallery. So it's, it's kind of interesting to me and making me think about what might happen for our future class too, and how we might try and use both the virtual and the physical spaces to advertise their work and showcase them. So define a little bit what Chimera is and what you were looking for from the students for this show. So one of the students came up with the title and they present and I can't remember who right now, sorry, but um, What they wrote about was that in ancient myth, the chimera was a terrific fire-breathing monster with the head of a lion, the body of a goat, and a serpent for a tail. Today, the word chimera can describe any singular amalgamation of seemingly disparate parts. So they started writing about how the 15 of them are merging their different ideas and their different techniques into this unique perspective to create this sort of one central entity, where you can see perhaps how throughout the program, some of the ideas might like bounce off one another, because that definitely happens within an arts program, I'm assuming other programs as well. But you can start to see where works connect and ideas and techniques or motifs or whatever. And then they also talk about how the word chimera can also indicate a wish or desire that is in fact illusory or impossible to achieve. And so what they expected to have happen in their world in terms of presenting their work to the world and having a big party and celebration became this impossible feat. And so they, they really shifted beautifully to make it work in a new way for themselves and they actually got to show a lot more work in this space than they would have in the gallery. So it, it's turned out to be really interesting. So did they choose which works they presented in the space? I mean, some people only have a couple of works in the online virtual space. You have other people have more works. Mm-hmm. How, who decided what they put on their page? The students decided that. They decided how much they wanted or, you know, how little or how much. Some people felt like they only had two or three maybe really, really strong works that they wanted to put out in this way, right? And then other people that, um, especially a lot of our advanced photo people, have larger bodies of work that are actually, they're working in big series. And so they pretty much loaded their whole series onto onto their page. It's really a huge variety. You've got linoleum and woodblock. There's photography. There is clay work. Uh, John Curry's 
ceramic ugly <laughs> jugs are hilarious. I could just see them at an art festival anytime soon. Um, there's a beautiful pastel work. Gosh, I mean, it really is so varied. One person, I'm interested that one person specifically referenced uh, COVID-19 and, uh, you know, losing access to her studio space and losing the sense of warmth and security that the studio lent her. And she made a, it's called Rug. Talk a little bit about that piece, maybe. Mickey, yes. Um, Mickey's Rug, I think she started making because she's back in St. Louis with her family. And she has previously, when she had her studio space at school, been making these like massive kind of acrylic paintings. And it's interesting the way that she shifted from the wall to essentially the floor, right? Um, To instead of sort of creating these kind of like landscapes based on the personalities of people who she was naming them after, um, this place then becomes like a domestic space or like sort of a sacred, almost liminal space for her, I think. But yeah, thinking about the way that rug can signify home and then signify like something known and secure. Was there any particular piece that really spoke to you within the body of works that are on their website? Well, I don't want to play favorites about anybody. (laughs) It's not really a favorite, more just something that speaks to where Uh, you are right now, maybe. You know, Robin Haithcote's work always speaks to me in a really interesting way. Her body of work right now is called My Time with Pheasants, and she continues to push herself and maybe push what (laughs) the audience might want to see. That's how her time, I think, has always been at MU, and I, I do love that about her. And I also really appreciated Tucker McCann, who is actually a a football player and he has this lovely body of prints that are about almost like voyeurism in a weird way, but they're about sort of intimacy and space and isolation too. And his whole life is football, but the other side of his coin is that he loves art and became really good at printmaking. And so I'm sort of touched by the work that he's been doing while he's been in the program too. And where can everybody look at these works? What's the easiest way to access the online gallery? Probably the easiest way to access it is by going to binghamgallery.missouri.edu. And our exhibition is kind of on the landing page for the gallery site through the School of Visual Studies. And then there's a link there that will um, take you to our Wix site. Perfect. Well, I'll put that up onto our Facebook page too, so people can check it out. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you so much for featuring us. They worked so hard and I really appreciate everybody, like all the wonderful feedback we've gotten. Thank you so much, Diane. I I appreciate that. All right. I'll chat with you soon. Bye, Catherine. Bye-bye. And it's the world of books that is our next hopping off point today and a chat with celebrated author, festival director and bookshop owner, Alex George. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? I'm curious about a few things. I always curtail the amount of time we have to talk about the books you want to talk about by asking you questions. But, you know, when else am I going to have the chance to like sit down with you every week and ask you questions? So here are my questions for this week. With libraries closed across the country and more people with time on their hands, I'm curious what the state of book sales is across the country. The state of book sales is good. It's actually up. I have a figure in my head. If if I'd known you were going to ask me this question, I would have done a bit of research. But I think it's up. I think I read in some trade publication 
This week or last week, that it was up 6% uh, month on month from last year, which sort of makes sense given the fact that people are spending so much more time at home. They do have more time to read. And so we're sort of seeing that in, in, in those numbers. That's fantastic. I mean, is that true of Skylot too? I mean, you've obviously had a few, a one particular very big book release. I would imagine your sales are up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's been interesting. I mean, as, as, as you know, and as we've spoken about in the past, our business model has changed completely because we haven't opened our doors to customers for seven weeks now. But in terms of the uh, the numbers that we're seeing, in terms of the number of books that we are selling, uh, it's all looking relatively healthy. And it, it is actually a little bit up on last year, uh, despite the fact that <laughs> it's rather harder to sell a book these days than it used to be because we, we have to mail them out or deliver them. And now, of course, we can do curbside pickup, which is great. Um, but yeah, people are people are hungry for books to read. And uh, and we're seeing that both locally and, and the national picture reflects that as well. Well, for you personally, you have so many books vying for your attention. How do you read? How do you get through so many books? <laughs> well, not as quickly as I, as I wish I could is the answer. Um, I mean, I read a, a lot, obviously, and I tend to have a, usually three or four books going at the same time, plus another one on audio. So there's always sort of a lot of information going into my head. And, you know, I should be, if I were a very good bookseller and well-behaved one, I should just really be reading books that are coming out haven't come out yet, but are coming out in the future, because uh, then I can do those annoying things about talking about how this book is coming out and how it's wonderful, but you can't buy it yet. Um, <laughs> because that's, that is how booksellers get ahead of the game and how they're actually able on pub day to tell our customers what those books are like. Um, so I do do some of that. And I read uh, galleys and uh, advanced reading copies of novels that are still to come out. But I also, just because I love books so much. I, I don't regard the fact that you've been published as a disqualification <laughs> for me to read it. So I, I, I unfortunately um, spend a lot of time and money in my own bookshop buying books that have already been published, and, and I love them all. Um, you know, I, I don't know why. I think I thought for, for some reason that my my sort of addiction to book buying would somehow be <laughs> cured by owning a bookshop, but it's a little bit like putting an alcoholic in charge of a distillery. It really <laughs> hasn't really worked. <laughs> no, no, I, I can imagine it's just like being in the candy store the whole time. Do you skim read books or do you do you read for detail or do you read for the story arc? Oh, well, so those are different questions. I, I do not skim read books. And I think that's probably a function of being a writer myself. And I would, <laughs> I would rather hate <laughs> the idea of somebody skim reading the words that I've sort of slaved over and so I, I, I try and give all writers the respect that I think they deserve in terms of giving them giving it my full attention rather than just jumping hither and yon um, and maybe that kind of answers the, your, your second question I mean I you know I, I love and we're going to talk about this in a minute there's nothing I love more than a really really good story and that for me is always at the essence of of a book and its ability to transport the reader to to another place. So I'm always looking for for that narrative arc, but then also, you know, a, a beautifully constructed sentence is a wonderful thing and can give me enormous joy too. So, you know, and, and the ideal, of course, is finding both in the same place 
It doesn't always happen. Sometimes uh, the writing is beautiful, but the story leaves a bit to be desired. Sometimes it's the other way around. Right. I feel like a lot of books I want to read twice because I'm so excited by the story. I want to like skim reading it just to get what, what is the story? What is the outcome here? And then I want to go back right. and read it over and just linger on the sentences that have made me so happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think that you know, <laughs> I would dearly love to have the time to read some books twice. But unfortunately, <laughs> uh, that's a luxury that uh, I can't really afford at the moment. So what are we going to talk about this week? What two books have you got? So, well, on the subject of wonderful storytelling, um, a book is, that has just come out in paperback, which was enormous in hardcover, is Circe by Madeline Miller. And this is the story of the goddess Circe. It is a retelling of a bunch of wonderful Greek myths that Madeline Miller, who is a high school classics teacher, has put together. And it's just, it's magical, magical stuff. And if you think, oh goodness, that sounds terribly boring and really not for me, I would urge you to, to try it because it's, like I say, it's good old fashioned storytelling there's a reason why these stories have survived for thousands and thousands of years. And that's because they're really fantastic. And there's a good old fashioned sense of good versus evil in a lot of these things. And, you know, you have you have gods who are somewhat capricious <laughs> and occasionally rather bad tempered. Uh, and then you get humans acting in all too human ways. And it, it's just it's thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. It's a, it's a wonderful page turner. And I just, I gobbled it up. I actually listened to it. And uh, the um, the narrator was this rather posh English lady who did wonderful justice to it. And, and I just, I, I, I was so, I was actually quite surprised at just how much I enjoyed it. But it is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And a wonderful escape from the everyday and the sorts of things that when we sort of read the newspaper or turn on the TV and watch the news, um, you know, reading about, goddesses and things in ancient Greece is a, is a wonderful escape. It couldn't be much more different. So uh, strongly, strongly recommended. Really enjoyed it. I must admit that you, I feel like you're talking to me because I, I read the synopsis of the book and I thought, yeah, this is not for me. I'm, I'm just not really into Greek gods. But, but all of the reviews that I read about it said the same thing, that it's got popular romance and it's got human emotion and it's got all of the things that we want from a contemporary novel, but they, she just assigns them to gods and monsters instead. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. And yeah, don't be, I mean, really don't be turned off by by the uh, the historical context, uh, you know, I mean, a good story is a good story, no matter where it's set. And, uh, you know, it's all about the, the conflict and, and, and resolution. And, uh, and Madeline Miller just does a beautiful job of bringing it all together. And um, yeah, I just, I loved it. And the next one is by a writer called Rebecca Searle. Yes. And um, again, and this is kind of escapist, but in a totally different way. So this book is called In Five Years. And um, again, this is absolutely not <laughs> the kind of book that I normally would read. Um, again, this is actually one that I listened to. And it tells the story of a corporate lawyer. Maybe that's what attracted me to it. Because I thought, oh, I can't remember those days. Um, living in New York. And um, she has her life set. Or at least she thinks that she does. She has a fiancé. She's getting married. Uh, has a nice apartment in Gramercy Park and so on and so forth. And then one night she goes to bed and wakes up five years in the future. 
and there is uh, she is in a different apartment there is a different person in the apartment and then she goes back to sleep and then she wakes up back where she was five years previously and if that sounds like something of a stretch in terms of possibility um okay i will grant you that but what i will say is that it works very very well and rebecca sell does a wonderful job of presenting this somewhat improbable scenario and making it sound you know entirely ordinary and then the rest of the book uh, is really about how she, how this character works through her time in the intervening five years because she desperately tries to not be where she found herself and that one shot forward to the future uh, and whether or not she gets there or not i don't want to spoil too much about it but it, it's it was it was a very well done book very entertaining a quick read uh, and again just a bit of escapist for these times and, and i i thoroughly enjoyed it one reviewer I I read said, um, fair warning, this book has stirred up a lot of emotions. It has the potential to wreck you. I would be remiss not to mention that. There's, it's kind of tearjerker as well. It's not just this sappy romance. There's uh, there's a lot of heart in it. Oh, yeah. And it's not really, I mean, I mean, I guess there is some of that sort of romantic thing, but the core relationship in the book, and I'm not going to give too much away by saying this, is between this main character and her best friend. And and that that um, Rebecca Sell did very very well, just bringing out the nuances of a you know a decades long relationship between these two women and the sort of ways that they adore each other and annoy each other and how they're different and how they're the same, and that was that was wonderful. And yes, I mean that reviewer was right. There is it, it's um, there's some very sad stuff in there for sure. So if you're feeling a little fragile, then. Maybe not for you, but but you know you know you take the rough with the smooth, I suppose. But but it, it is. I mean, it's a book. The the emo- the emotions which are there are uh, genuine and 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 you know fairly near the surface for sure. Okay, Cersei by Madeline Miller, and In Five Years by Rebecca Searle. Two good books of escapism, both of which are available at Skylark Bookshop for curbside pickup. Are you still doing home delivery? We are, but under, very limited now. Most people prefer not to wait, so we kind of don't advertise it anymore. Okay, curbside pickup then. Alex, thank you so much. Always great to chat to you. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Diana. And from South 9th Street, it's only a short virtual stroll up Cherry Street to Ragtag Cinema to find out what's happening in the movie world with cinema director Barbie Banks. Hi, Barbie. Hi, how are you? I am great. I always wish I didn't say that. I was like, people say, how are you? I'm like, I don't know. How am I? Just, you know, normal. Right. <laughs> the Same new- as I've been for the last five weeks, yeah. really. <laughs> Just the new normal, normal. Exactly. <laughs> so before we get to this week's virtual cinema releases, last week we chatted a little about the possibility of a summer drive-in fundraiser for Ragtag, and I wondered if those plans had progressed at all. So I'll have an update next week for the official date and everything. We're still working on the location for that. So it's in the works. I had several people email me over the weekend, I think because Moberly's drive-in opened and they went there and asked like, when is this going to happen in Columbia? So it's in the works and I will definitely have more details next week for you. I wonder if modern cars are designed for drive-ins the way that, you know, 1950s cars were? I would think no. I'm guessing 
the height of some cars is very annoying in that <laughs> in that settings. I wonder if you have like you know the the tall cars have to park at the back. Right. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I would think that they would monitor that or it's just a free for all and you're just lucky if you get up front, you know. (laughs) So one thing I've been thinking about is the physical reality of making a movie right now. I'm wondering what you are hearing about what the film industry is doing to ensure that movie production is a safe activity. You know, I was just on a call the other week with some people who are working on this very topic of like, And most things are at a standstill right now. And they're trying to figure out how do we how do we make that happen? So typically, there's a ton of people on a movie set, everywhere from craft services to holding a boom mic, and they want to be able to employ that number of people again, without putting anybody at risk. So they haven't opened up in Hollywood, they haven't reopened any studios just yet as they're preparing for that. But what they think it's going to look like is a lot of masks and more closed sets, which that means only the necessary people there to actually make the film and um, a little different type of craft services, which is typically, you know, a table with delicious food on it. And that doesn't seem as safe anymore. So I think it'll look really different, you know, and I that's one advantage of the documentary form is that it typically isn't in a studio. You're not shooting on, uh, you're, you're more on location in people's homes and with these subjects. And so those documentaries have actually not stopped being made during this time because it, it's a little bit more intimate and less people. So um, for the true false side of our organization, we're kind of curious to see what's going to get done for this year because there hasn't been any stalling of that. I mean, uh, intimate settings is not really something that you want right now either. Yeah, but there's just, it's you know, less groups of people, which sometimes when you're, you have your documentary subject, you're, you're quarantined with them in general, because <laughs> you're in their home and in their space. And so I think some of those filmmakers have just, that's who they're spending their time with. And so it's actually getting done. When do you think this period of zero or limited production will manifest itself into the world of release dates? When will we see the effect of this? I think we're going to have a whole year of films that we are hoping to see come out, not come out until 2021 or 22. The Academy Awards are going to look very different. You know, they they announced that films can be considered for the Academy Awards if they are video on demand, which is very different for what the Academy has done in the past. And so um, I think we're going to be seeing these effects for a long time. I, I believe that big studios are going to want to still have their top movies out by Christmas because that tends to be the busiest time. And so, you know, there's a big film coming out called Tenet and then the new Wes Anderson film. I bet we see those coming out in December rather than July and October, which is when they're currently slated. But I mean, they're already in post-production or or completely finished. It's just when their release date is. So, I mean, if you've got a movie that's, say, was scheduled to be uh, for filming to start this year sometime, say now, May or June, and that gets delayed, like what is the time frame from starting to film to getting it into a cinema? Yeah, I would say about a year and a half. So we're going to, yeah, things that were supposed to start this summer we probably won't get them started until the fall, which will mean another year and a half of them actually being ready to be released. 
So it'll be kind of the back end of next year that we really begin to see a paucity of new films being released, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the films that we generally relate to the Academy Awards, those big films, they um, often premiere at the Telluride Film Festival, which is in September. And this year, it's still on the books to happen. But the number of films has been decreased a lot because they haven't some of those they are finishing at the last minute. And so I I think this year at Telluride and the next year at Telluride, we're going to see a much smaller slate of films then the ripple effect of that will just keep keep coming. So yeah, we, you know, when we talk about our future, we are thinking about, of course, the festival for next year is always on the plate, but then just what it's going to look like. I think it's going to be a lean couple of years for Ragtag with the types of films that we have. A lot more retrospectives being played, which could be really cool, but those new releases, we'll have to wait a little longer for them. We've talked about Ragtag hoping to reopen in early June, if the situation allows it. Do you know what films you are hoping to reopen with? We don't have them uh, slated in just yet, but um, we've been working with big distribution companies. So when we get a film, it's on a a drive that we get that we then load into our server. And those distribution companies have been working on deals where it's like, three or four films. So like a whole drive of Hitchcock films that would come to us, which just cuts down on our costs and allows them to not have to produce so many drives. And so I think we're going to see a lot of groupings of films like that. So Hitchcock films, whole series of like Back to the Future films. um, And then what I saw slated um, when we were looking at just like the list of films was a lot of 1980 teeny bopper films that you would normally go see in the summer, which I'm excited about. So (laughs) things like weird science and uh, the breakfast club and that kind of thing. So, and then what we have been talking to our audience, they want things that are going to be a little escapism. So I think we're going to see a lot of that too. So if you have any ideas, you know, we have a form on our website that you can fill out with films that you would like to see. And now's the time to request literally anything. (laughs) We're prepared to, you know, check it out for our audiences and see what we can get to allow you to see it on the big screen. Well, we're going to talk about two films that you have coming up on the virtual cinema. And I should say before we start talking about them, that one of the films does refer to sex. So if you have sensitivity to that, then maybe turn the radio down for a minute or two. So the first film is called Alice by an Australian director, Josephine Makiras. Um, Tell us a little bit about Alice. That's the one that is most intriguing to me. Yeah, you know, this is I, of the two, I, this is the one I haven't seen yet. But Ted, our programmer, just raved about it in our staff meetings. It was written and directed and produced by Josephine, which I, I always feel like you see a lot more women doing that where they take on all the different roles in their film. And it is about a woman whose husband loses their all of their savings because he is addicted to a escort service. And when she finds this out, she then turns to sex work to help her family survive. And so I think it, Ted said that it is, takes a different look at sex work. And instead of being an oppressive thing, it's actually very empowering to her. And that um, it is a way for her to maintain she has a son. And so maintain the the life that they want with her, with her child. It won the Grand Jury Prize at South by Southwest last year in 2019. And we've just kind of been waiting for when it was going to be released to us. And so I'm excited to be able to share it with the community. Yeah, I think that's going to be a great one. The um, 
The director said she'd always been fascinated with society's blind spots and double standards, particularly in regards to gender identities. And I think often sex work can come into that uh, double standards that women are judged far more harshly than men are. Yeah. So I'm intrigued to see that. Also, because many, many lifetimes ago, I had a friend who was a a high class escort, and it oh, was, really? we had a lot of conversations. It was very, very interesting. So I'm curious to see how this director deals with that subject. Yeah, you know, it's it's always a a thing that you, my initial thought is a little judgmental, and then I have to like remember everything I've learned in the world and and then rethink about it. And so I think that's what this film is going to do is help us. Um, while the characters are really intriguing and understanding why somebody might turn to this career and um, just to protect her families. We've only got a little bit left, but we've got one more movie just quickly. Tell us about 14. <laughs> yeah, sorry. My dog's barking <laughs> in the background. 14, the, if I had to say this one is the most... Uh, independent film that we've shown so far in our virtual cinema it's low budget which doesn't mean that it's bad it just is low budget and it's about a female friendship and how as you age you see your friendships in a different light and sometimes it's not always the best but um and sort of the degrading of this friendship and so where I watched it I thought it was lovely and it really reminded me you know of as I get older and the friendships that I have from high school and college and how they adjust as you go through different times in your life. Two films coming up. Both you can stream through Ragtag, and in both cases, 50% of the price you pay goes to support Ragtag. Barbie, we're yep. out of time, but thank you so much for dropping thank into you. Speaking of the Arts once again. Thanks. Just one more cup of Earl Grey tea in our Columbia Arts World tour today. I do hope there's a slice of lemon on the saucer. And it is with my favorite purveyor slash pusher of all that is classical, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Director of Development, Monica Palmer. Ah. There you are, Monica. Good morning. Now, of all of the intrigues you have presented over the past few weeks from the world of classical music, Mm. I am most excited and intrigued for today's, for you have given me a new Shiro. (laughs) I want to hear nothing other than the music of Barbara Strozzi and Eurovision Song Contest entries, obviously. From here on out, I am in love with her music. Are you really? Yeah. That's amazing because I started playing it and I was really digging it. And everyone in my household was like, what do you have on, mom? Please turn it off. So it's not everyone's cup of tea, but you are an odd person. So (laughs) delight in that oddity and, and say, yes, Barbara, you and I. We are soul sisters. That's wonderful. Now, admittedly, I haven't listened to a huge amount, but I was listening to something called L'Eraclito Aramoso. Oh, listen to your Italian accent. I love it. I mean, I probably probably just butchered it. But uh, <laughs> but that was so beautiful. Look, all mm. the way through, it's like six and a half minutes. I had mm-hmm. goosebumps for six and a half minutes. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Well, and like I said, like she is not everyone's cup of tea, but and she's not a household name now, which I think is is dreadful because yes. I think she's just as talented. She's right up there on par with all of those dusty old men that we love to talk mm, about all dusty the time. Dusty old men. <laughs> but, you know, she was actually quite well known in her day. So if we're still doing the linking the dusty composers to more modern rock stars, I would say that Barbara's probably the Madonna of the 17th century Italy, you know. So she's she was very popular. She has a lot of uh, focus visually with mm-hmm. the upper part of her chest. Yes. Yes, she does. It's a very famous <laughs> painting of her that is yes. very, very wenchy. 
It, it, it is. We'll get to that in a minute. She does also hold a very important honor of being the most prolific composer of printed secular vocal music in Venice for her time. So we're talking for male or female composers. Now, granted, most of the composers at that time were writing pieces for the church. But Barbara, she wasn't really into that. That wasn't her thing. She did publish one book of sacred songs, but that was that. Was that. And the fact that you and I can still talk about Barbara and still hear her music today mm. is actually pretty remarkable, especially since most women of that time were, they, they used male pseudonyms in order to even get their work published. And then people that were in charge of preserving music in, in its printed and published form didn't value women's writing as highly as men's. And so they wouldn't make such a big deal about saving it. She was well connected through her father, though, I think, wasn't she? Exactly. You know, dad was, you know, he knew what to do as far as getting his daughter out there. So we're making an assumption that Julio is her dad, but she was actually born Barbara Vale in Venice in 1619. And uh, given that Barbara's mom was a servant in Julio's household. It's more than likely that Barbara was, in fact, Julio's natural daughter, but we don't know that for sure. He did end up adopting her or allowing her to use his last name. Uh, so he had this offspring, this female offspring. And so there were a couple of options for for men to do with their, their female offspring at that time. One was make her a nun or make her a wife, uh, pretty much the options. Uh, both required dowries, but the nun path was favored because it was cheaper. And, you know, Julia was never financially secure for very long. So, but he did have a progressive view of women and their societal role in general. So he chose a third option for Barbara. He was uh, a member of this Venetian group of intellectuals known as the Academy of the Unknowns. And he used his connections there to further Barbara's career as a musician. But he did invest in the product. He got her some great education. He got her exposure. He got her a lot of exposure. <laughs> yes, he did get yeah. her a lot of exposure. It was the era of low-cut tops, I think. Yeah, so uh, Bernardo Strozzi, no relation, uh, he painted some really somber portraits of some other Venetian intellectuals, including this famous portrait of Monteverde. He uh, did a little bit of a different picture when it came to Barbara. She's shown in a painting wearing a very low-cut dress, and it appears like she's having a, a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> um, one of her breasts is kind of visible there, and uh, on the desk there's a violin, there's sheet music draped over the back of the chair, and in her left hand she has the neck of a viola da gamba, a precursor to the modern cello. And so, you know, little symbols there to show she's a musician. Um, but apparently these symbols were also, like, the hourglass shape of the instruments was, like, evoking the the hourglass shape of a woman's body and the one exposed breast can indicate things too, like motherliness, like this maternal nature or youthful, uh, how do you, perkiness? <laughs> That's a nice word. <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and also uh, two exposed breasts, bad. One, classy. So I didn't know that either, but that was kind of a thing at the time. Like that was, you know, it was... It's fine. They, I mean, they even had like makeup for nipples at the time. Like that was, you know, huh. it's just kind of like, you know, well, nip slip, that's fine. Fashion so. is cyclical, <laughs> so you never know when it's going to come back around. Precisely. Yes. So not a whole lot is known about Barbara's life, except for like her music, reviews of her music, and this crazy portrait. 
I think the most striking thing about this portrait is Barbara's expression. It's sort of this world-weary gaze, which is striking in someone who's not yet 20. And maybe it's confirmation bias because of what I'm already like feeling about women in music and how, you know, they, they weren't allowed to shine and see themselves represented. But to my modern eyes, I get this kind of sense of exploitation there. It's this mm. sort of like the the scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail, you know, that I'm not a witch, they dress me like this. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> she's not a courtesan. They do. But, you know, that was the thing about being such a high profile person at the time. You know, just like Madonna had to deal with gossip, Barbara was dealing with that. And they were writing these manuscripts saying that she was a courtesan. And instead of fighting back, her dad was like, you know what, there's no such thing as bad press. So (laughs) let's just roll with this. And let's go ahead and let them believe that because there was also this belief at the time that only an impure woman could be an intellectual at the same time as providing the family with a regular stream of income. So it was just the, the nature of the time that they lived in. So anyway, Barbara continued publishing and performing and she became a mother of two daughters and two sons. She skipped over the whole marrying bit that really wasn't for her. Um, She's so awesome. I love Barbara. (laughs) She's fantastic. I knew you would love her. Um, After the birth of her third child, Barbara released her Il Primo Libro de Madrigal. It was the first book of Madrigals in 1644. And now, despite her success that she's experienced, she still held this keen sense of apprehension of being a woman in a man's world. And you can hear that in this inscription. She writes, being a woman, I am concerned about publishing this work. Would that it lie safely under a golden oak tree and not be endangered by the swords of slander, which have certainly already been drawn to do battle against it. Right. And she's like 26 at this point. She's Mm -hmm. still so young. Still so young and still has so much talent and creativity. And it's probably, I mean, you just have to imagine the kind of life that she is living and the kind of criticism Mm -hmm. that she's, that's being wielded every day. So, but thankfully... The swords didn't damage or destroy her music, which is actually quite remarkable. Most of it written for soprano, which she was. And it's also these very emotional, if you read the translations of her poetry and the text that she wrote herself, uh, they're just, they're very dramatic. They're frequently about love, mainly misery in love and unrequited love. And she uses some really cool musical things to this dissonance we've talked about before um, that kind of shocks and and stirs emotions in you on a visceral level. She uses this really beautifully with emotion, especially the dissonance between what the voice is doing and the accompaniment is doing. And it really colors that text. So when you're talking about death or tragedy or any like negative emotion, there's this nice little dissonance between where the voice is going and where the music is going. So it just really like, it almost hurts. The music like physically hurts. And uh, while she did make significant contributions to the genre of the cantata, her greatest achievement, I would say, is arguably the precedent that she set for other women, not only in publishing music, but just other women of that time and that would come after her, just how unapologetically she did what she did. And she was an inspiration for women battling for equal representation in a male-dominated field. And that is something that transcends music. You know, she did make some really great notations in her music. So the people who are singing it today are probably singing it very similarly 
to the way she did. Well, I listened to one by a group, I guess, called Prothymia, and it was recorded in The Hague. And it's of this one piece of music that is just so beautiful called Leraclito Amoroso. So we could listen to a little piece of that. It's six and a half minutes long, so we don't have that long, but here's a little clip of it. And that was a very short clip by the ensemble Prothymia of Leraclito Amoroso by Barbara Strozzi with soprano Victoria Cassano. So I'm curious whether the Missouri Symphony Orchestra has any plans on performing any Barbara Strozzi works in the future. Well, if I have anything to say about it... (laughs) We will. I have this great program in my head. I haven't pitched it to uh, Maestro Kirk yet, but uh, it's called Virgins, Vixens, and Virtuosos. And of course, the virtuoso would be Barbara. (laughs) I love it. I I think it's so exciting that there were these women within the world of classical music and and that we just kind of need to en masse rediscover them, that the aficionados Mm -hmm. have never forgotten who they are. I mean, like you say, Barbara Strozzi has her own Facebook page, but um, I mean, I had never heard of her before. Why is that? Why do the women get buried? It's too sad. It is too sad. And we can undo it by talking about them constantly. So let's do that. Okay, no more dusty old men. <laughs> I want voluptuous, gorgeous women from okay. the <laughs> in the future. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Monica. Anything immediately coming up before we close? Uh, yeah, this Saturday, Coffee with the Conductor at 10 a.m. We've got a Zoom meeting. Uh, it's uh, All the information's on the Facebook page, so you can go there and check out the event. Meister Kirk's going to give us a sneak peek of what we can expect from Hot Summer Night's Greatest Hits, our virtual music festival that's coming up in June and July. So I can harangue him about having some Barbara Strozzi in the near future then. Yes, please do. <laughs> like, bring a petition. It'll be fabulous. <laughs> Thank you, as always, Monica. I'll chat to you next week. All right. And that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we can all be together again. Until then, do stay safe and stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.